As we look at God's word together, let's pray and ask his help uh, in doing that. Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it. And we pray now that you would uh, still our hearts and minds, help us to uh, put off the busyness of life and to concentrate on what you have to say to us. Uh, please help us to see you as you really are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you might have noticed the government released the 2006 census results. Did you know, in the past 10 years in Australia, Christianity is the only religion which hasn't increased? Over the past five years, it's actually decreased. And at the same time, the numbers of Buddhists, Hindus and Muslims have each doubled. And atheists, well, they've increased in number by over a million. Does it uh, scare you to think what the numbers might be like in another 10 years' time? Does it fill you with hope for Australia, for the future? I mean, if God's the only God and he's totally in control and all-powerful, why does it look like he's losing? At least in the numbers game, anyway. It seems like Australia is just filled with people who are turning away from God. But it's not just random people turning away from God, is it? It's our, our friends. It's our workmates. It's our family who filled in those census forms last year. Maybe that's why when we ask them to come to uh, evangelistic events or just things with our church friends, they say no. Or they ring up at the last minute with some lame excuse for why they don't want to come or why they can't come. They're running away from God. And I think in a way, we kind of sense it, don't we? That's why we feel so, so stupid when we ask people to come to things. It's embarrassing to in, invite people to come and hear about Jesus. We just feel like losers. We feel like our friends, well, they won't include us. They'll mock us. They'll laugh at us. They'll laugh at our faith. We don't want to be rejected. And God's not winning. So why do we even bother? Why doesn't God just do something, stand up for himself? And that way, he'll prove to everyone uh, who he really is. Then we'd see people in their thousands turning to him, wouldn't we? Why don't we see God winning? Maybe God's just too weak and pathetic. Or maybe there's something else going on. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, we see God face up to the biggest enemy of all. And it'll be a massive test to see whether uh, God's strong enough to win or uh, whether he'll just crumble in the face of opposition. Remember where we're up to so far in Ezekiel. Uh, he's been prophesying to the nation of Israel. They're in exile in Babylon. And all through the book, Ezekiel's been prophesying about judgment on Israel. But over the last few chapters of the book, the message of prophecy has changed. Instead of prophesying uh, against Israel, 
Ezekiel's been preaching a message of restoration and hope for God's people in Babylon. It's been a message of restoration to the promised land. Uh, A new king will be in charge and God himself is going to give the people a new life and a new heart by his spirit. They'll be made holy, that is, set apart to follow him as they should. God will live with his people and be their God and they'll be his people. Uh, The problem is, though, God's people are off in exile in Babylon. They're sitting under the power of the Babylonian king. And they don't look very impressive. It doesn't look like God's winning. It doesn't look like he's in control. He's not strong enough to keep his people in the promised land in the first place. So even when the Israelites do return to the promised land, there'll still be problems. There'll still be nations more powerful than them. They'll still have these enemies who are putting God's promises in jeopardy. And God's not strong enough to protect them. So we find ourselves asking the question, is God really able to fulfil the promises that he's made to his people in Ezekiel 34 to 37? And what about those enemies the enemies of God's people, the enemies of God's promises. For him, for him, for him to fulfil his promises, uh, God's going to have to do something about them. Is God strong enough to rescue Israel from its enemies? Or is the exile they're in uh, at the time of Ezekiel just a picture of more exile to come later? Uh, That's the tension that's been created by God making these promises to his people while they're still in exile. Uh, And so we come to chapters 38 and 39. And uh, it's an interesting battle prophecy about this guy called Gog. Uh, He's of the land of Magog, uh, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Gog's one of the Lord's enemies. uh, And it's clear he's going to be a problem. He's going to put the Lord's promises in jeopardy. And Gog's going to have to face off against the Lord. Read from verse 1 with me. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Well, who's this Gog character? It's not really very clear from the passage. You see, the names of his kingdoms, they're pretty obscure. The only other time in the Old Testament that uh, Tubal, Meshech and Magog are mentioned is as descendants of one of Noah's sons. They're not mentioned again. They just quickly pass into the background. So it's probably fairly unlikely that Gog's related to any of them. Because whoever Gog is, he becomes a pretty major player. I mean... 
he's a pretty impressive guy, a pretty impressive enemy. He commands a massive army, a great horde, a formidable army, all of them on horseback, armed to the teeth with swords and shields, and we'll see later, bows and arrows as well. He looks like a really powerful guy. So uh, maybe Gog's just meant to be some kind of world superpower, like Babylon, the guys who are, are the superpower at the time. In fact, Gog could be any one, of the na- any one of many nations since Ezekiel's time, if he's just meant to be one of the world's superpowers. But the problem with that kind of idea is that there hasn't been a powerful nation with a king called Gog. And none of them, none of the nations, have had an alliance uh, with any of the nations that Gog's partnered with. Take a look at his allies there in verse 5. Persia, Cush and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets. Also Goma with all its troops, and Beth Togomar from the far north with all its troops. The many nations with you, Get ready, be prepared. You and all your hordes gathered about you and take command of them. Persia, Cush and Put, Goma and Beth Togomar. That's a lot of allies. But uh, where Magog, Meshech and Tubal are hard to identify, these guys aren't. See, these guys, they're real nations. Uh, They're nations that we could put on a map. So... If you've got a map of Israel, Israel right in the middle, you could actually uh, put these guys, these allies of Gog, on that map. And what you'd see is Israel surrounded completely. Nowhere for Israel to escape, nowhere for them to run. Israel are boxed in. Uh, It's like that scene from Lord of the Rings. Towards the end, uh, the measly little force of men stand at the gates of Mordor. The gates open and the massive forces of Mordor just rush out and surround them totally. No way out for them. It looks like this is it. It's a massive, unbeatable army. A picture of Israel totally cut off because of Gog and all the nations coming against them, coming against God's people in God's land. So it's obvious that this isn't a picture of the current state of affairs. It's a picture of a future event where Israel's returned from exile. Uh, they've been returned to the promised land and they've been dwelling there securely for some time. That's when Gog's going to come. That's when he's going to form these alliances. That's when he'll attack Israel. Verse 8. After many days you'll be called to arms... In future years, you'll invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They'd been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. So, uh, Israel, they may have returned from exile, but surely this picture with Gog is just the exile going to happen all over again at some time in the future. This is it for God's people. God's too weak to stop it. His people are unprotected 
and they're just going to be defeated again. So much for God's promises to his people. God's got a vicious plan in mind. See it there in verse 10. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. You'll say, I'll invade a land of unwalled villages. I'll attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people. God's going to attack. Uh, he's going to attack Israel without warning when they least suspect it. But we uh, still haven't figured out who Gog is, have we? Well, uh, it's still unclear whether Ezekiel has a particular person in mind. But what is clear is Gog and all his allies are a picture of opposition to God's people. They're a picture of opposition to God's promises. So, ultimately, they're a picture of opposition to God. See, Gog's a picture of a future battle between Israel and all people who are opposed to God. It's, it's universal opposition to God. But although this Gog guy looks like an impressive enemy, Ezekiel gives this prophecy for a purpose. You see, Gog isn't in control. It might look like it, but he's not. The Lord is. God the Lord himself is going to bring this army against his people. We saw it back in verse 4, where the Lord dragged Gog out with hooks in his jaws. Now the Lord's going to use Gog to restore his reputation, which has been tarnished by his people. Through Gog, everyone will know just how powerful the Lord is. Take a look at verse 16. You'll advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. So uh, where God's people look stranded, cut off, surrounded, helpless, and it looks like they'll just be off in exile all over again, now we're going to see the real winner. See, God's people, they might be helpless and easily beaten, but God isn't. The Lord himself is going to fight this battle. He'll do everything that's needed to wipe out his enemies. He's going to bring judgment on them in supernatural ways. Gog's army, they might look impressive and unbeatable, but when the Lord fights against him, we'll see the really impressive one. When the Lord destroys Gog, we'll see just how great and holy he is. His reputation will be well and truly restored. See it there in verses 18 to 23. This is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground, and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. 
The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble, and every wall will fall to the ground. I'll summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones and burning sulphur on him and his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness. And I'll make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I'm the Lord. And uh, this war, it's not going to be a long and drawn out thing. It's not going to be siege after siege, skirmish after skirmish. God's going to win this battle as if it were nothing. He's going to knock the weapons from their hands. He's going to throw them from their horses. He'll destroy them and leave them for the scavengers to, uh, to finish off. And that's the picture that you'll see if you read chapter 39, verses 1 to 7. And then all Israel has to do is come in and clean up after God's great victory. You see it there in verse 9 of uh, chapter 39. They use the weapons for fuel. And then verse 12, it takes them seven months to bury all the dead and cleanse the land. It's complete and utter destruction for Gog. No longer will Israel and God be a laughingstock. God's reputation will be known to all people. He's the Holy One of Israel. The one who stands up for his people and destroys his enemies. The Lord's victory will be complete. And this victory will be a memorable one. The Lord will be the one remembered as the winner. Not the impressive looking Gog. And that means this is a picture of hope for Israel while they're still in exile. No longer will God seem weak because his people have been taken from the land. No longer will his name be profaned uh, because of the ap apparent failure of his promises. When God's enemies are totally defeated, everyone will know that he is God. The people were in exile because of his punishment of their sin. But they'll be restored because God is faithful to his promises. No longer will his people be ashamed because of their rebellion against him. No longer will they fear their enemies and fear being carted off into exile. God will defeat all those who oppose him and fulfill all the promises he's made to them in chapter 34 to 37 of Ezekiel. Read verse 28. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I'll no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. God will defeat all his enemies, and that's how we'll know that he's able to fulfil his promises. So, uh, you'd think this would pretty, uh, be pretty easy to spot 
uh, where the prophecy is fulfilled, uh, particularly in Israel's history, right? Uh, it's obvious where, because uh, Israel, they would return from exile. Uh, they'd live there for a little while. Then uh, they get attacked on every side, and God just wipes out his enemies. Easy, really. Um, yeah. Except that's not what we see uh, when we think about Israel's history, is it? You see, Israel does return to the land in 538 BC. Uh, and ever since, they've been fighting to keep it. It happened with the Greeks and Romans. And uh, Israel didn't win against them. And it's still happening today. In fact, Israel hasn't been at peace for at least the last 2,500 years. So if you're a Jew, you'll actually still be waiting to see God's decisive victory against his enemies. But for Christians, it's different. See, we believe that this battle's already been fought and won. And it happened when Jesus died on the cross. He took our sin and he took the law we we're unable to keep and he nailed them to the cross, making us alive, giving us new life, which God promises in Ezekiel 36 and 37. And not only that, but it's at the cross where Jesus triumphs over all opposition to God, making them a public spectacle, showing God's greatness as he defeats his enemies. Uh, you'll see the words come up on the screen there of Colossians 2. Listen to what they say. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So this battle's already been fought and won by the Lord Jesus Christ. But why doesn't it look like it? Well, it's because we're uh, still waiting for Jesus to return. Like the exiles, uh, waiting to return to the promised land. Now, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And that's when we'll see this uh, prophecy of Ezekiel fully and finally completed. We'll see Jesus return in glory to judge the whole earth, casting his enemies into hell for eternal destruction. And that's the picture we saw in our reading from Revelation. Jesus has already won uh, the battle at the cross and we'll see it fully and finally revealed when he comes again. So the reality for us now is God's already fulfilled this prophecy. He's defeated his enemies and Jesus is already seated on the throne in heaven, ruling over everything. And on the day when he returns, at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth shall bow to him as the Lord, the winner 
over God's enemies. So, sure, in the numbers game, it might look like God's losing, like everyone's just turning their back on him. But God has already destroyed his enemies, and turning away from him means joining the losing team. And for Christians, it means the opposite. We're on the winning side. We share in Christ's victory. We aren't losers because other people don't want to know about Jesus. We aren't losers because we get rejected by our friends, our workmates, or our family. We're the winners through the death of Jesus. And uh, we can read in Romans chapter 8, you can read it later on if you like, you can read that there's nothing which can take that victory from us. There's nothing, no power, no authority, no height, no depth, nothing which can separate us from the victory of Jesus if we have our trust in him. It's guaranteed. Christians are the real winners, even when it doesn't look like it. But what do we do if it still looks like God isn't winning? What do we do if in 10 years' time the numbers of Christians still hasn't increased but the numbers of Muslims, Hindus and Buddhists has doubled again? Well, I think it's right for us to be concerned when the census figures show. What do we do uh, if our friends, our family... Well, it's right for us to be upset. It's right for us to be upset when they reject us and mock us but we shouldn't despair. And we don't give up hope because we know that God's won. We just keep going, following God, trusting in Jesus and inviting people to hear about him. Telling them plainly about the victory of Jesus at the cross. And so uh, we can uh, read these words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. They'll come up as well. Chapter 4. We can have great confidence for the future, not losing heart as we trust God to work through our weak efforts to tell people about him. Uh, listen to them as I read them. It's 2 Corinthians 4 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Maybe uh, we'll still feel weak. Maybe we'll still even feel a bit stupid. But we know that God's strong enough to win this battle. And we need to trust him to do it through the Christ's victory at the cross. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this part of your word, which enables us to see you as you really are. Thank you for uh, the victory that we see here, your victory over your enemies. And we thank you for the victory that Jesus Christ won through his death at the cross. 
Uh, Father, we thank you for the great confidence that that gives us, that we can share in that victory. We pray that you would help us not to uh, give up hope in this world which so often seems like uh, things aren't going your way. Uh, Father, help us to trust in you and help us to look forward to the day when Jesus does return and that we see uh, his victory fully and finally completed. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.